0: First Peter, chapter one, beginning with verse three, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Of all the complexities of life, none is more daunting than death. It's a rather ghoulish thought to consider this Resurrection Sunday where we celebrate life to consider that everyone is going to die. Every single person in this room is at some point going to die in their lifetime. As a matter of fact, every one of you, every one of you, everyone you know, will know, or ever have known, is going to face the same fate. Really an encouraging thought for Easter morning, isn't it? For every man, woman, and child, regardless of economic status, religious persuasion, ethnicity, or even political party, death is our fate, and our fate is the same. Roman poet Horace, he said, quote, Pale death beats equally at the poor man's gate and at the palaces of kings. And while you might not like to think about it, death is an inevitable part of life itself. On June 12, 2005, former Apple founder and CEO Steve Jobs was honored with the opportunity to present the commencement speech for Stanford's graduation. Let me read you just a section of what he said. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you, but someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it is quite true. What a word for graduation. (laughs) Greek philosopher Epicurus, he, he once said, It is possible to provide security against other ills. But as far as death is concerned, we men live in a city without walls. And it's to this point that we can all sympathize with what the great poet William Shakespeare wrote that death is a fearful thing. Because death is such an ominous and scary proposition It's true, isn't it, that our progressive, health-conscious society has become obsessed with doing what? Extending life. In order to prolong the inevitable, we've become obsessed with eating correctly, exercise, as well as investing large amounts of money into cutting-edge medical research. It was eccentric director Woody Allen who once stated I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. He also, by the way, famously said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) And yet, in spite of all of your novel attempts at prolonging your biological life, it is your biological life itself that ultimately kills you no matter what you do to try to escape death, it is not only unavoidable, a destiny you cannot escape, but ironically, death, it's one that you don't have all that much control over. Avid runners die of heart attacks. Children contract untreatable, uncurable diseases. Non-smokers develop lung cancer. Responsible motorists are killed by drunk drivers. Innocent people are murdered. I had a friend I played baseball in high school with who checked out of school one Friday, not feeling well. He was dead by Tuesday from meningitis, like that. It's a maddening truth that death, it schedules its appointment without my consultation. It puts a date on my calendar without making sure I'm available. (laughs) Have you heard about the website, deathclock.com? It's true, this actually exists. Don't don't go there now because you'll get sidetracked later. (laughs) But this is a website that you can go to and enter some information in, and it will tell you the day you're going to die, which can be helpful, I guess. For me, I'm going to die May 26, 2068 just three days shy of my 85th birthday. That's kind of exciting. I'm going to live a full life. One of the main reasons that we don't like thinking about this reality is that the very notion and the uncertainty of death freaks us out. English poet Barry Cornwall described death as, quote, the tyrant of the imagination. You might say the concept of death is morbid. That was a joke, by the way, just making sure we're all on the same page. Though you may prefer to ignore the inevitability, it's simply a truth that the reality of death, it becomes something I can't overlook, especially when it strikes so close to someone we love. Just last night, just last night, I received a message from a friend I hadn't heard from in a while that two of my former students, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, two beautiful young ladies full of life and vitality died in Athens on the loop in a car accident. One was killed immediately on impact and the other in the ambulance. It's then like you might want to overlook death. You might not like thinking about it when it creeps into your mind and your consciousness. You like to kick it out. Who likes thinking about death? But when someone dies, we can't run from it. The death of a friend or a family member, even even an acquaintance, it's unsettling, isn't it? It's unsettling because it reminds us of our own mortality and future destiny. One with the Grand Reaper. Have you ever noticed how convoluted and weird things get when someone famous dies? and their friends and their colleagues seek to pay tribute? Let me give you an example of this. Many of you know of Stuart Scott. He was a famous ESPN sportscaster uh, who died at the age of 49 from a long battle with cancer. And on his death, upon his death, on ESPN, almost instantly, everyone on TV became a theologian. Not only did everyone instantly believe in an afterlife, conveying the idea that Stuart must be in heaven, looking down on us all. One commentator even remarked, quote, he's entertaining someone for sure in heaven. Of all of the reactions, none were stranger than Ray Lewis's theological observation. That, quote, while we may have lost a friend, we all gained an angel. I don't want to become an angel. Like that's, that's not encouraging. Like it limits your outfits with the wings and there's the constant halo. Just not something that really is appealing to me. And yet when faced with death, we got to come up with some explanation, some reason, something beyond just kaput. You know, one of the, 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 the reasons death is so menacing to so many is that it's often hard to reconcile this fixed destiny with our practical philosophy concerning life. Today, in science classes across the world, the theory of evolution preaches, it heralds naturalism, the religion of naturalism to the masses. Now now bear with me, let me give you a little bit of science. But naturalism states that natural laws and forces operate in the world and nothing exists beyond the physical universe. Nature is the only reality and matter is all that's ever been. Naturalism states that everything that is, is best accounted for by reference to the material principles behind it, such as mass and energy and other physical and chemical properties that we can discover through empirical study and intellectual reasoning. Furthermore, naturalism holds the position that supernatural concepts, things that that we believe exist outside super, the natural world, like spirits and deities, the miraculous, are not real and have no room in the intellectual community. And as a result of naturalism, man is therefore only one piece of the physical universe. No part of man separates him from the rest of the plant, animal, and mineral universe. Man's existence can be completely explained by natural processes. Since man is a chance result of biochemical evolution, he is not only uh, not duty-bound to adhere to a set of moral rules, he's free to live the way he wants, but these rules, the ones that are available are those of man's own making. And since people differ as to which rules are the best, none of them are in the end binding. Understand what science teaches us. It's teaching our kids, it's teaching our middle schoolers and our high schoolers what it's teaching us at the universities. It's teaching that death brings about only the extinguishing of life. That's it. When a man dies, he simply no longer exists. Meaning, and I I don't want to come across, across brash here, but what this means is that Stuart Scott is not looking down on us. He isn't entertaining anyone, and he certainly hasn't become an angel. He ceased to be the moment he died. According to one naturalist, human destiny is an episode between two oblivions. Man is born, lives, suffers, dies. That's it. Now, what's interesting about this is that that while most believe in this naturalistic outlook, large numbers, even within this very group, still hold to a belief, a non-rational belief, in an afterlife, It's a position that is illogical and it's inconsistent with naturalism and Darwinianism. But most people who even believe in the natural idea, when it comes to death as being the end of our existence, that's something we're just not willing to accept. Consider the disconnect. While about roughly 50% of Americans believe in evolution, according to recent polls, 75% of Americans believe in the existence of heaven or hell, including 66% who believe both exist and another 11% who only believe in heaven. Additionally, of Americans who are agnostic, atheist or do or who do not identify with a particular religion 43% of this group believe in a literal heaven and hell among those who do believe 82% of atheists agnostics and those who don't adhere to a religion believe they'll wind up in heaven of that group only 2% believe they'll end up in hell that's fitting 9% Don't think they'll end up in either place because, well, they they never believed. What's crazier is that a survey compiled in 2014 by the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture revealed that this same non-theistic target group of that group, think about it, 6%, it's not a big number, it's still a number, believed in a bodily resurrection. That's a stunning fact, all things considered. Have you ever considered why it is that the idea of death without eternity doesn't sit well? Why that's something that you just don't want to accept? Like the reason that this is the case is based in the fact that according to scripture, human beings were created to live forever. Like, Like, let me explain why that fact makes death without eternity so bothersome. Though I might want to fly like a bird. Have you ever had that that desire? You know, to be able to fly, how cool would it be to fly? I'd really love to fly. But you know what? It doesn't bother me that I can't fly. Why? Because I was never created to fly. Science fundamentally explains why I can't fly. And that seems consistent, right? With what I intrinsically just know to be true can jump off a building and gravity will, will be a terrible friend. However, when science tells me that death is the end of my existence, and the same way it tells me I can't fly, regardless of my philosophical bent, I find it deeply, deeply bothersome because I was created to live forever. Scripture says that I have eternity in my heart. Now on the surface, the two issues seem to be identical. Nature says I can't fly because I'm not a bird, and that I cease to exist when I die because I'm nothing more than matter, but I think we can agree. I don't stress out at night pondering the deep complexities of things. I don't stress out over my inability to fly like I do with death being my end. And the reason for the difference is that contrary to the scientific consensus of naturalism, I was created to live forever. I wasn't created to fly, which is why my death freaks me out. When faced with death, the majority of people, they default typically to some type of unfounded personal theory about an afterlife or some form of of religious understanding. And note, every religion has to address the pressing question of what happens when we die to be a religion. And it's to that point that all religions, every religion, falls into one of three categories. And I'm not going to delve into these in great detail, but I just want to lay a framework. Three categories all religions fall into concerning death and the afterlife. One, there is the idea of reincarnation based upon karmic justice. And there's like two subcategories to this. There is what I would refer to as a perpetual reincarnation. That means there's no heaven, there's no hell. When I die, I'm reincarnated into some form based upon karma and that this process never ends. It just always continues. I go up a few notches, I go down a few notches. I'm just in this cycle, the cycle of life, Buddhism, Scientology. So there is perpetual reincarnation, but there's another subcategory which is proposed or purposed reincarnation. And that would be like Hinduism. There is reincarnation based upon karma, but there's a destiny, ultimately, according to Hinduism, that you're going to break free of the cycle and find yourself ultimately in heaven. So first, you have reincarnation based upon karmic justice. Secondly, you have literal destinations based upon religious moralism and Islam. There are five pillars of faith, that Muhammad specifically said you had to obey so that at some point when you die, you stand before Allah at judgment. And based upon how good or how bad you were at obeying these five tenets would determine whether you go to paradise with cool castles and a bunch of virgins or hell, total punishment. Judaism has the Levitical law to obey that determines heaven or hell. Catholicism Sets up one religious works determining where they go, heaven or hell or like this limbo stage called purgatory where I have to work off any debt I still owe. Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses also fall into this category, although their beliefs about the destinations themselves vary dramatically and I'm not going to waste your time with it. Thirdly, So you have reincarnation based upon karmic justice, and then you have a literal destination that's determined on religious moralism. You doing good things or doing bad things, standing before God and that stuff getting weighed. But there's a third category, and that is a literal destination based not not on religious moralism, but instead the acceptance and the rejection of God's grace. That I can do nothing to save myself, and yet Jesus on the cross offered a sacrifice on my behalf, that by his sacrifice, by his stripes, I am healed, that my sin, the wages of my sin being death, were satisfied by what Jesus did on the cross. Thus, when I stand before God, it's not about my goodness, it's not about my badness, it's about whether or not I'm found in Jesus and his grace, that it's a gift to be received and not something that I knuckle down and earn. And it's here that we transition to what makes Christianity so very different from every other position concerning the reality of death and what follows. You see, unlike everyone else and all other positions, Jesus intentionally presented his physical resurrection as the litmus test for validating if he was actually right or tragically wrong, and his assertions about what happened after death. If you think you become a butterfly, tell me why. If you think you become an angel, that you get your wings, explain to me how you know that. If you think that Muhammad was correct, tell me your assurance. Because last time I checked, he's dead. You see, Jesus and Jesus alone said, "Here's this is what death is. This is what happens. And you know what I'm going to do? Just so you can trust that I know what I'm talking about, I'm going to die and come back to life. Will that work? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes so far as to affirm how completely vain our Christian faith would be apart from the resurrection of Jesus when he wrote, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, thus he's dead, our preaching is is empty and your faith is also empty and we're all wasting our times keep in mind, on three separate occasions, three times, Jesus foretold what was about to happen. Like three times, Jesus told his disciples, yo, we're going to Jerusalem. Some stuff's going down. I'm going to die. It's all right. Because three days later, like death's not going to hold me down. I'm going to come back to life. You got it? Over their heads but three times. In Mark 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Mark nine thirty-one. he taught the disciples, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They're going to kill him, after he's killed, he'll rise the third day. Mark 10, 33, 34, behold, we're going to Jerusalem. The son of man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, scourge him, spit on him. They're gonna kill him. But three days later, he will rise again. Like Jesus made it very clear, right? What was gonna happen? He staked everything on something that had never been done in human history, And has never been done since. Resurrection of the dead. As a matter of fact, Jesus' resurrection was such a dominant theme in his ministry that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 63, even his enemies affirm this. Quote, while he was alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. And yet what happened? Three days after his crucifixion, after... Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea removed him from the cross via permission of Pilate. As they took him, they laid him in the tomb. A stone was rolled across. Jesus' detractors also got permission from Pilate. Set a garrison. We're told in Luke 24 that on the first day of the week, just three days later, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared, but they found the stone had been rolled away from the tomb and they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is not here. But he is risen. Remember, remember, how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the son of man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. As proof of his resurrection, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verses three and eight, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose the third day according to the scriptures and was seen. That's an important thing. By Peter, Then by the 12, that he was seen by over 500 at one time, of whom the greater part still remain to the present, which means you can go ask them for yourself, but some have died. After that, Jesus was seen by James, his half-brother, again by all of the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me, one born out of due time. Like, understand that the, the eyewitness evidence for the resurrection of Jesus would stand up in any court today to be able to bring before a magistrate over 511 eyewitnesses to an event saying, listen, I saw him die. I saw him placed in the tomb. His body's missing and I saw him alive. If one person said that, I think you're nuts. Two, it's a conspiracy. Three, that's kind of getting weird. 511? Enough already, right? It's interesting, regarding the weight of so many eyewitnesses, Chuck Colson, if that name doesn't ring a bell, let me, let me tell you, he was the, the former special counsel to President Nixon. He was actually convicted for crimes during Watergate, after which he ended up coming into a saving faith with Jesus and started an incredible prison ministry. Chuck Colson, he said this, he says, I know, The resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Consider that since Jesus indeed rose from the dead, that you this morning can trust that he is who he claimed to be. That Jesus is God incarnate, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords that the empty tomb, an enduring symbol of the resurrection, is the ultimate representation of Jesus's central claim that he could atone for sin. Why? Because he was God. Consider that since Jesus indeed rose from the dead, you can trust that what he said about life, about death, about what comes next is true. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus made this declaration. He said, I am. It's a definitive statement. The way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. That in Jesus and Jesus alone is found salvation of sin, restoration from the damage of sin, regeneration to new life, forgiveness, forgiveness power and strength that in Jesus is found the things the world promises but never makes good on. Love unconditionally joy despite my emotional circumstances and peace. That in the midst of the storms we all face or will face that I can have a peace that surpasses even my ability to understand it. How in Jesus Because of the resurrection I can trust that in him I can have life now and for all of eternity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Consider that since Jesus indeed rose from the dead you can trust that he finished what he came to accomplish Because of the resurrection, you can have confidence this morning that the payment for your sin was satisfied. That you can stand before God innocent and righteous, justified. That the payment you owed has been satisfied. Not only that, but you can trust because of the resurrection that you have an advocate in heaven, pleading your case, that you also have access to the Father that when you cry out, God hears and he answers. In our crazy, messed up, dysfunctional, volatile world, people are craving, and maybe you this morning, hope. Not just for eternity, but hope for tomorrow or today that our lives feel hopeless. The resurrection of Jesus provides hope that life today, your life today, can be redeemed and restored from the devastating effects of your sin. You might have stumbled in here this morning and you've messed it all up. The resurrection of Jesus says, it's okay, I got this. I can fix it. Once again, to this point, Paul throws down the gauntlet in 1 Corinthians 15, when he challenges those who are claiming that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't really that big of a deal. It wasn't necessary or essential to Christian salvation. Paul says, for if the dead do not rise, Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But the resurrection lets us know that that's not the case, Please understand, the implications of the resurrection of Jesus are not just limited to the afterlife. A risen Jesus means there exists an active Savior. Not only does his resurrection produce a hope for a better tomorrow, but it means I have the opportunity to experience a life-transforming encounter with Jesus today. Paul's life was changed forever, For one reason and one reason alone, on the way to Damascus, resisting God, rebelling against God, miserable, he encountered a resurrected Jesus who changed him forever. Without the resurrection, there is no Jesus to change any of us. Finally, consider that since Jesus indeed rose from the dead, death Death is not the end of your life. There's more than hope in the empty tomb. There is a blessed assurance. It's been correctly pointed out that the historical resurrection of Jesus is the only proof of his triumph over sin and death, and is therefore the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. You and I, it's the basis of Christian hope. It's the miracle of all miracles. If Jesus didn't rise, we had no assurance of resurrection. Without the resurrection, you have no clue what happens when you die, and that becomes scary. In a world where every person dies, poets, scholars, artists, theologians, and the like, have wrestled with the implications of this reality. Ernest Hemingway, he wrote, quote, of all stories, if continued far enough, end in death. And he is no true storyteller who would keep that from you. And while this horrifying nature of death is the logical result for a secular humanistic society embracing a Darwinian model of life, It is the message of the resurrection that finds itself pertinent, that finds itself incredibly relevant for it challenges the notion that death is the end for it's not. The empty tomb says there's more, that there's a new chapter. Jesus' resurrection from death validated his position concerning your resurrection. It's as though Jesus has been saying, I'm not only telling you what happens when you die, but I'm going to validate my words and prove I'm trustworthy in my assertions by my actions. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to be laid in a tomb. Three days later, I'm going to be resurrected. Jesus made a promise, a promise we can trust that those who believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus was crystal clear that for his followers, death was not the end of life, but instead the beginning of a glorious new existence. Then, in a bold move to substantiate his position, he called a shot. He pointed to the the bleachers and he presented his physical resurrection and the empty tomb as the proof that he could be trusted concerning such affairs. Understand, if Jesus failed to rise from the dead, if the tomb was not empty or the body was stolen, the exact opposite reality would be evident. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, he would have been found to be nothing more than either a lunatic or worse yet, a liar. And yet, it is the boldness of his move, this move predicting what would come that differentiates Jesus's teachings from all others. No other world religion or religious leader has ever dared present the same litmus test to validate their views concerning death and the afterlife. How can anyone this morning be so sure that what Muhammad or Confucius or what Buddha said concerning death and what came next was actually true? How can any of them believe it and hold it with a certainty without the crutch of blind faith? My faith in what comes after death is not blind. It is known because Jesus died and was rose on the third day. As it pertains to what happens when I breathe my last, I can say confidently, I know what immediately takes place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 9, Paul says, for we who are in this tent, groan, being burdened. Not because we want to be unclothed or die, but further clothed, eternity. That mortality may be swallowed up by life freaks us out. Now he, speaking of Jesus, who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased. Rather, to be absent from the body. Death is what? To be present with Jesus. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, death and life, to be well-pleasing to him. In his book, Jesus Himself, famous preacher, Andrew Murray, he wrote, a dead Christ I must do everything for. A living Christ does everything for me. As we close, in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus made a very bold declaration. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. If you fear death, if death freaks you out, if you're uncertain about what happens, if you've been hit, if it's been hammered home, if it's something that is forcing you to chew on and to grapple with, you don't have to be uncertain or afraid. Why? Because Jesus rose. This morning, may you substitute fear for faith. Faith in Jesus. Evangelist Billy Graham once made this glorious declaration at one of his crusades. He said, the resurrection blasts apart the finality of death, providing an alternative to the stifling, settling dust of death and opens the way to new life. As the psalmists declare and as Paul reiterated, oh, death, (laughs) where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Because of the empty tomb, I can say with certainty that death is not my end, but it's my beginning that it's a moment of glorification, that it's a moment where pain and suffering come to an end when I enter the presence of Jesus, my savior and my friend, my Lord, the captain, the anchor. Friend, never forget, never forget this one truth, an overarching truth concerning the story of Jesus. his resurrection first necessitated his death. It was from death that came life, from death that came resurrection. That's why Jesus would say, if you want life, do this. Die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And if you follow Jesus At some point, it's inevitable. You will meet an end to this earthly existence. But in that moment, you will begin an existence that will put to shame everything you've endured, everything you've experienced, that it'll provide meaning and purpose. That when you die, it's not the end. It's I'll see you later. I know where I'm going. This morning, may you know with total certainty, may you leave here with total certainty that Jesus died on the cross to, yes, provide a way for life, but he was resurrected to remove the mystery of death. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Zach Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Zach's teaching ministry by visiting zachadams.org.